Hello to all my truth seekers out there, and welcome to the show. I'm Glenny, your hostess with the mostest. This is Let's Share True Stories. And today, damn, I got a crazy one for you. We're going to be traveling over to Australia for this one. Uh, this is going to be another one in the Places to Never Vacation series, as in any creek in Australia. Don't. Just don't. Okay, obviously, we're going to start at the uh, horror movie that really freaked me out the first time I saw it, and probably the only time I've seen it. Probably time to rewatch it, but Wolf Creek. This came out in 2005, and like every great and freaky movie that I've seen, a lot of the most effective ones will tell you based on true events or based on true stories. Wolf Creek is kind of like a mod podge there's a couple of monsters that we're going to discuss today. However, first we're going to start with the worst one. His name is Ivan Malat. And this is a turducken of stories. Once again, I was going to do the toy box killer for you guys, but it became so, mm, I can handle a lot, but you know, it's a lot to research and you really get into uh, what you're researching and it was just too much. It was too much. Um, however, this is heavy as well. Not as much, but it still is. Uh, yeah, being the worst serial killer in Australia is quite the title, especially considering Australia began as a penal, penal colony. Um, anyway, you do your own research on that. This is not a history episode, only a history of murder. So stick with me. It's true crime time. Okay, y'all, welcome. Here we go. This is how I'm gonna kind of roll this one out for you. First of all, for the next 20 minutes, 20 minutes, so if you don't wanna hear this part, just skip forward um, to the next part. But 
right now for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to play something from YouTube uh, that I found that is just hilarious. I've never, <laughs> I was about to wrap this episode up, but I have to include this because it's a great summary of the movie, the movie itself, how it was received, some facts that go along with this. And this guy is hilarious. This show is called Kill Count on YouTube. So obviously it is what it sounds like. There are um, a bunch of horror movie reviews and he literally just tallies up the number of deaths but uh, and talks about how they died. But that's the very end. We're going to skip that part. <clears throat> so right now we're going to talk about the actual movie Wolf Creek. We're going to talk about the filming of it. Um, we're also going to discuss a little bit. They do mention in there how the actor who played the character Mick, whatever, I forget the last name, um, but he is fucking terrifying, you guys. It is terrifying. And hearing this guy talk about the movie just reminds me of how I felt when I was watching it. Um, so anyway, we're going to go through this, do the movie setup, but the guy that played the killer in the movie in real life was on trial for rape. Yeah, that's a whole different story. Okay, so we'll discuss the movie Wolf Creek. We're going to talk about Ivan Malott's background. We're going to talk about his family interactions. Um, then we're going to discuss how evidence started to come up. And we'll discuss uh, the actual victims, who they were. Because I don't want to give too much to this fucking asshole piece of shit. So glad he died. Um, but unfortunately, he took a lot of secrets to the grave with him. They call his kill count from 89 to 93. However, from everything I've read and heard from the couple of survivors, which are the two women in 1971, two friends, and he violated one of the friends in front of the other, but her quick thinking saved them. And I'll tell you that story. Paul Onions will tell you his story in his own words of how he survived. But anyway, I'm having fun with the new format of the podcast and I hope you guys are too. I really enjoy doing some kind of like reactions and including, you know, things that are true crime documentaries and, um, you know, my resources supporting the facts. I've have been hooked on 60 Minutes Australia for like well over a year now. I just think they do a really good job and they cover some different things that um, aren't normally, you know, uh, covered here. So anyway, here we go. Let's go ahead and go through the kill count and then we'll roll into the real true facts. But right now, let's talk about this crazy ass traumatizing movie, Wolf Creek. Here is the uh, kill count. G'day mates and welcome to The Kill Count, where we tally up the victims in all our favorite horror movies. I'm James A. Janice and I apologize for that accent. <laughs> Today we're looking at Wolf Creek, an Australian film from 2005. Wolf Creek follows a trio of backpackers exploring the Australian outback. They end up having to deal with Mick Taylor, the most sadistic psycho in the southern hemisphere. And I want to underline that this is a bad, bad man, and this movie might not be for everyone. It is. Y'all, that's funny because uh, when brother Boris, uh, Ivan's brother is talking, they ask him what it's like to be in the family. He says, bad, bad, bad. So, you know, that's, yeah, that sums it up. Let's, let's go. Intensely nasty and upsetting. 
and includes several threats of sexual assault. Roger Ebert once said, there is a line, and this movie crosses it. And yet, for as nasty as it is, I'm a pretty big fan of Wolf Creek. Same. I usually don't like movies that are too mean-spirited, especially ones made in the mid-2000s, my least favorite era. But Wolf <laughs> Creek is gorgeously shot, showing us Australian landscapes and beautiful lighting, and it features relatable, enjoyable protagonists. Yeah. In some ways, they're your average horror victims, young, attractive party people who are out looking for a good time. But the and the, yeah, he's right. They are relatable. And he also goes on to state that uh, the the setting itself, the the outback, the the elements, they are a character in their own. And um, it's a huge part. I really love the way this, this is filmed. It's so beautiful, but it's a little bit different. I haven't really, just with the actual cinematography, the filming of it. So anyway, just another little... They're also sincere, kind-hearted, and resourceful when shit hits the fan. And then there's Mick Taylor, the grossly charismatic murderer. Australian writer-director Greg McLean, who will go on to direct the Belko experiment, wanted to create an iconic horror- I've never heard of that, but y'all, I did read the- this, um, the guy that wrote it, he did want to create the antithesis of Crocodile Dundee. And I don't, <laughs> I'm getting close to 40. And so this movie, Crocodile Dundee, was hilarious when I was a kid. And the, the famous line from it is, that's not a knife. This is a knife. So anyway, um, yeah, I'm sorry for that accent as well. Okay villain for his country. He based Mick Taylor on world-famous Australian stereotypes like Crocodile Dundee, but with an evil twist inspired by real-life Australian murderers. It's the boogeyman kind of thing. We wanted to credit Australian boogeyman. Taylor's played unforgettably by John Jarrett, who, full disclosure, had some allegations against him a few years ago. Jarrett said he was innocent and it went to court, where he was acquitted after a jury found him not guilty. That's all I feel comfortable saying about the case, so if you need to, you can look it up yourself. Mm -hmm. Wolf Creek owes just as much to Toby Hooper as it does Steve Irwin. This might as well be called the Outback Boomerang Massacre. With sun-soaked cinematography and scenic stroll before the horror begins. Make no mistake, this movie is a slow burn. For the first 35 minutes, hardly anything happens at all. It's a leisurely introduction to likable characters, but that makes the horror more upsetting when it finally happens. It really works for me, and outside of the Saw franchise, Wolf Creek is probably my favorite of the so-called torture porn subgenre. Oh. In fact, I'd call this torture cinema. I like the movie even more sure after did. watching the 50-minute making of documentary by producer Matt here. It showed how this was a passionate production by a director repeatedly described as creative, organized, and technically talented. Everyone on Greg McLean's small cast and crew sang his praises. He's one of the best directors I've ever worked with. McLean had a clear vision for this movie and communicated it to the people he was working with. Your ideas go to the people you work with. They, in turn, put their full faith in him, resulting in everyone delivering quality craftsmanship all around. Speaking of quality, craftsmanship today's sponsor is dr squatch oh, hi, oh! should be to you too no dr squatch get out of here all right he literally took his shirt off and is like washing with some dr squatch stuff have you guys ever seen sack squatch i god i hope you have anyway this is based on a true story. Like with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's only partly true. I'll point out the true crime details later, but for now, how about that view? Three backpackers are preparing for a trip across Northern Australia. Ben Mitchell is an easygoing native Australian who has to secure them a shitty car from a casually sexist guy. They get, uh, 
really easier than that, Trevor. Though he may not be confrontational about it, Ben's hashtag not all blokes <laughs> doesn't keep him from having an acute love triangle with his travel partners, both tourists from the UK, Nancy Free Christie Earl and the more straight-laced Liz Hunter. They're they celebrate all their attractive and cute. The party's so hard, someone ordered a cake for it. Oh, shit, Ben, watch your head, dude. That pool is not wide enough for all that. Oh, the good time splash around goes late into the night, and in the morning, it looks like Ben and Christie spent the night together. Mm. But they slept head to toe, so maybe there was no funny business. Liz is none the wiser either way, having spent the night with her shellfish lover, the ocean. Still got time for a quickie before we leave. This scene was absent from Wolf Creek's theatrical release, but let me tell you, that version is hard to find. I always try to use the theatrical cuts for the kill count, but with this movie, I had to go with the much more accessible and widespread unrated version, which is five minutes longer. The trio rendezvous at the station wagon, and one nifty rack focus later, these road warriors take off down the Fury Road. It's beautiful country, perfect for landscape shots and a road trip montage. We're talking duets in the front seat, bare feet on the dashboard, yeah. checking each other for cavity, Best everything candy. you might want in a mid-2000s sizzle reel Pepsi pitch. Ooh. After they pass the Powerpuff Girls and the happy giant with broken knees, Liz spots a last-ditch detour for petrol and makes a wrong turn to a rundown servo-slash-restaurant. There were hills around, I bet they'd have eyes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, just to sum it up so far, they're having fun. They're having a good time. Um, and it freaks me out because the background, the setting, the outback with the hills and rolling mountains and red, it reminds me of here where I live. So yeah, that that cool right. makes it scarier. The graham cracker is not the person they've got to worry about here. Inside, Liz gets leered at by men who speak about her in disgusting ways. At two, Outback Santa. Ben steps in to defend her honor, but is forced to make peace. Not Sorry, they're at a petrol station. A war when confronted by this huge jacked man. This scene helps establish Jack. how out of their element our heroes are. Should Tai Chi these eyes? Tai Chi his eyes. <laughs> good people, but outmatched in this outback. Ben won. Oh, the sign on the on the petrol station said Emu Creek. Okay, Creek number one. To stand up more for his friends, but two, it mean a likely one, ass two. That sucks. They leave and are hit with an unusual Australian sprinkle. Wolf Creek was filmed over five weeks in South Australia, around the Flinders Ranges, north of Adelaide. This place was drought central and hadn't seen rain in 10 years. So imagine the filmmaker's surprise when they faced rain during 21 of their 25 shooting days. Wow. <laughs> and we right up at you. The king was ultimately forced to rewrite the script to acknowledge the weather. The adaptation worked, with the change in weather matching the change in these characters' fortunes. In the end, it was yet another vibe moment. It was just, you know, it was, it was amazing. Making a problem into a um, solution. They're wet. So it looks like a disaster, but they made something beautiful. They made it work. God, I love things like that. Yay! Hot Australian summer continues as they spot a sign for Wolf Creek Crater. They grab the goon and start walking to the titular landscape okay. feature. There is a real-life Wolf Creek, but it's in Western Australia, over a thousand miles away from where they filmed. It's also spelled with an E, which is lacking from this movie's title. Production got some shots of the real-life crater, and it's intercut here with everything else that was filmed in South Australia. If you're like me and love how this movie looks, well, say hello to director of photography, Will Gibson. Hello. Gibson brought his Hello. experience making documentaries, as well as working with both film and video, to make Wolf Creek feel simultaneously cinematic and authentic. He had to convince director McLean not to shoot on mini-DV, promising that he could make HD feel just as real. McLean was happy to have had his mind changed. I'm going to become the new spokesman for high def. 
Well, why? Because it is so cool. Liz takes off for a solo hug, <laughs> and since Christy told Ben that Liz is fancying him, he takes the hint and catches up to her. Ben admires the view, and also the crater, and before long, he and Liz are smooching and giggling. Nathan Phillips was excited to play Ben, partly because of romantic moments like this one. His chemistry with both you can tell they're really having fun. how refreshingly likable they are. With the love triangle now simplified to a love line and unconnected love dot, the travelers regroup and <laughs> discover their car is dead. Since this pack son right. Obi-Wan only knows how to fix land speeders, they're stuck in this broken down piece of shit car when some mysterious <laughs> That's a, a old Adam Sandler shout out. I love that. That's great. Here on the horizon. Finally, 37 minutes into the movie, it's time for Mick Taylor to make his entrance. What the bloody hell are you mob doing out here? Scared the shit out of me. He came to wreck everything and ruin their lives. God yeah. sent him. John Jarrett was McLean's first and only choice for the role, a decision he made 10 minutes after meeting him. A veteran Aussie actor who was in Picnic at Hanging Rock, Jarrett. Y'all, uh, the hat, the hat is part of his character too, and the laugh still haunts me. He's been in several other Aussie horror films, loved the script, and was happy to sign on for the part. Best script I think I've read. Full stop. Jarrett fully invested himself in the role, sometimes continuing to act after cuts. Mm. Dude didn't shower for six weeks so he could fully embody the character. Method acting. Sounds like Shia LaPouf. Le I had to have Mick about me um, because John Jarrett just couldn't couldn't get there. Mick Taylor is an old-fashioned rugged outback man who clashes with Ben's sensitive city ways. He makes a homophobic remark when Ben says he's from Sydney. Poof the capital of Australia. Despite the culture clash, they're forced oh to rely on Mick and his mechanical knowledge. He says their car is kaput and that to fix it, they'll have to go to his workshop down the road. Oh, side note, like they said, land, like whatever, <laughs> utes. SUVs are called utes. Ute, utes, utility vehicles which in Australian could mean 100 meters or 100 kilometers. Uh. Although he's offering to help them, Taylor is immediately unnerving. He's uncomfortably aggressive, even when he's ostensibly being nice. Of course I'm not gonna charge you, you stupid bastard, hey? Mick Taylor's yeah. mechanic ruse was also the M.O. of Bradley John Murdoch, a real-life Australian killer who murdered English backpacker Peter Falconio in 2001. That's gonna be the other episode after this one, you guys, about Peter Falconio. Murdoch's case was so similar to Wolf Creek that the Northern Territory government delayed the movie's release there so it couldn't influence the trial. That's they take crazy. a very long drive that gives the ladies some concern, but eventually arrive at Mick's mining camp, where the travelers have a talk about and enjoy his drink of choice. Nothing like rainwater from the top end. Mick mentions his previous job exterminating end. wildlife for local farmers. He's a bit too cheery about the details. Now pigs were different. You have to get in close, you know, get the dogs on them, and then you go in with a knife. When Mick mentions a knife, Ben can't help but worsen the cultural divide by going all in on the stereotypes and comparing Taylor to another Australian Mick. That's not a knife. This is an off. <laughs> <laughs> is this Yahoo serious? Mick responds by trying to explode into his mind. Death For all the famous characters he could have pulled from, like Paul Hogan's Crocodile Dundee, Jared actually based his performance on his own father. He was an outback bushy, very funny, larger than life larrikin, but he wasn't a psychopathic um, murderer. <laughs> Things get even more tense when Liz asks Mick about a cuddlier Australian mascot. I'm doing people a service and I'm taking out a few rooms and they're everywhere out here now. What <laughs> tourist. Sensing that things yeah. are going south, Liz makes sure to sincerely thank Taylor for his help. No worries. 
but it's guess worries for Liz. She falls asleep by the fire and wakes up gagged in a dirty shed. This movie has suffered a sea change. Here we Halfway go. through, we've arrived at the horror, and Liz will be the first person we follow and root for. After cutting herself loose with broken glass, Liz finds their... Yeah, another part of the, um, the movie that is really cool the way they do this is it goes like into uh, kind of POV of each... Not like one of those weird POV things that makes me feel sick, but what this character is doing, their storyline, and then it goes on to the next character, and uh, it's kind of interwoven in that way, and I really enjoy that. Lemon of a car completely dismantled with no sign of Ben or Christy anywhere. Oh no, oh no. It's about to get worse. Okay, here we go, here we go. Never mind. Liz follows Christy's shrieks to a coordinated shack and peeks inside to see what Mick keeps in this awful place of awfulness. There are meat hooks, guns, a dead animal of some kind, and Christy, tied up and screaming hysterically. Taylor terrorizes her and belittles her lack of gun knowledge. Well, nothing happens when the bolts are, you see? Of course, he's pointing a rifle in her face. So long and so well on set that it left a lot of the crew feeling miserable. She was in a hell of a zone for three or four, five days. Even editor Jason Ballantine said he couldn't handle listening to the constant screaming for days. To give himself a soul cleanse, he added scenes with farts cut in. And his childhood is a lazy fart gags are incredibly funny. And so we did we did get into recutting some scenes. <laughs> Cutting, that's hilarious. Cutting the cheese here. I love that they had to throw something in to keep it light, light and airy and farty because no matter how old you are, farts are fucking funny. But, um, a few, uh, yeah, <laughs> They're all bloody and confused. <laughs> Mick's not only into torture either, as he threatens to rape Christy with a disgusting, sadistic glee. To help her friend, Liz starts a garbage fire that lures Mick out of the shack. While he's outside, Smart. Liz sneaks inside and comes face to stump with a headless corpse. It's not a full bastard skelly yet, so I guess I have to include it on the count. When Mick comes back inside to continue torturing Christy, Liz corners him with his own hunting rifle. He tries to talk her down with an impassioned plea for gun control. Now, Lizzie. Uh, a rifle in the wrong hands can be, you know, really dangerous, so... Get I love how Liz really tries Woo! to shoot him dead, even though she only grazes him. She even goes for the double tap, but the gun's out of ammo. Have you guys ever watched a movie where you really, like, literally can't sit down while you're watching it? Yeah, that is, this is the epitome of that for me. Damn. Still, gotta respect the gun butts for good measure. Liz takes the keys and Christy and prepares to get the hell out of Dodge. When Mick returns with a shotgun to stop them from leaving, they scare him off while installing a new bay window in his shack. They flee the crash zone, but it doesn't take long in the pitch black outback before headlights appear from behind. So Liz pulls a malignant and then eats the truck off a cliff. The survivors hide out cliffside until Mick leaves to mourn his whip. Christy is too traumatized to return to Mick's not-so-nice house. Okay, this part reminds me of the real story of Peter. It's, um, yeah, it's Peter Falconio's girlfriend um, who did survive uh, a different attacker, not Ivan, the one we're going to talk about. But this reminds me of that because she literally, for like five hours, hid under a brush while he walked around her, almost drove over her. His dog almost attacked her, but she laid still under the brush for five to six hours and survived. 
house and stays in the Sutherland, while Liz heads back alone, hoping to find another car and maybe possibly Ben also. Mick's compound was built from the ground up in a dugout by the production design team led by Robert Webb. Webb was a local South Australian and was able to get them anything needed from his contacts, including an actual human skull. That's someone's great-grandfather's skull from Central Europe. Oh! And they lent it to you. And they've lent it to me. At the compound, lent Liz a finds skull. Mick's collection of missing persons reports. She also finds his garage. It turns out, Jay Leno ain't got shit on Mick. He's kept every vehicle, as well as every backpack, passport, and camera of every wanderer he's killed. Yes, and that's also what keeps this movie drawing you in, is every time you start to have belief and faith for the character, that they're being smart, they're making the right moves, they're going to get out of here and find a little bit of solace or shelter during all this absolute terror and trauma. And it's not. It gets worse. It's like there is zero... Uh, zero good signs here. I'm sure he's been meaning to post it all on eBay, but, you know, hard to find the time with all the murder. Liz rummages through the headquarters and finds one that still turns on. Looks like this family's sprung for the good batteries, but maybe not the good rental car, <laughs> since the tape shows Mick extending them familiar hospitality. I'm like rainwater from the top end. Remember, kids, uh, never drink gutter runoff with strangers. Liz never take a drink from strangers. Look at Graham, Even water. realize that Mick has tracked them all the way from the servo. In earlier drafts of Wolf Creek, Liz, Ben, and Christy were just three more home video victims. To fit their small budget of $1.5 million, McLean made their trip the entire movie. Ooh, my budget. Cool. Liz gives up on the memories and matches key to car. Against all odds, her ride of choice starts. Uh -huh. Unfortunately, she's got a big hiker. His stab to her back sends her to the ground for... You guys, you know, the, the terror of... Uh, everyone, I think, has had at some point or another where someone pops up from the back seat yeah he stabbed her from behind and also another thing that they will discuss is he murders these characters in the same fashion by severing their spinal cord by making them suffer keeping them alive but paralyzed oh she pulls out a pocket knife to defend herself with but all that does is set him up for a callback that's not a moment <laughs> <laughs> in what may be the cruelest Damn. moment we see from this condescending killer, he stabs into Liz's spine, severing her spinal cord and turning her into a, well, head on a stick. <laughs> Though she's still alive last we see her, she's mm. reported as missing at the end of the movie, so I think it's safe to sadly say Liz and Taylor's last summer has suddenly ended. Mm. While it was faked on set using a real pig carcass, the literally unnerving head on a stick move is sadly all too real. It was inspired uh -huh. by Ivan Milat, an Australian serial killer commonly known as the Backpack Murderer. From 1989 to there 1993, he claimed seven backpackers' lives aged 19 to 22 and paralyzed some of them in this manner. Uh -huh. He also collected their belongings, including backpacks and cameras, another detail borrowed for this film. Oh, and he also gifted his family and girlfriend these people's clothes, items, whatever. He gave them as gifts to his family and friends. And I don't give a shit like you know something's up. When you know somebody and sh like, come on, just, you know. Bleh. Christy notices that Liz has been gone for a considerable chunk of the movie. So she assumes the worst and runs, hoping to get home and or away. Yes. More beautiful shots of the sprawling outback here, which was considered a sort of fifth character in the film. It's a so the sun is rising. I just want to paint the picture for you because it is beautiful. The but crazy the sun is rising she's running she's barefoot there's just blood all over her face but it's like the most beautiful sunrise ever it's just 
Well, like yin and yang up in here. A terrifying setting because of its desolation. The sequence is also one of many that showcases Francois Titez's score. Terrifying. McLean wanted music that neither took away from nor telegraphed the terror, so mm. Titas composed pieces that fit in with the movie's ambient horror. On a road, Christie's found by a kindly old man who's either way too late or way too early to be wearing a fuzzy bucket hat. <laughs> he offers her safety and salvation, but before long, he's left trying to figure out. Y'all, he does. He looks like someone from, like, I figure, like an old man that's a lighthouse keeper in Maine or something. He's got, like, the flannel shirt, overalls, and uh, but that's the topper, literally, the fuzzy golden like fuzzy golden fedora hat out what jerk hates his thermos can oh the guy gets excuse me i'm sorry like a like a kangle hat like the bucket hat okay sniped in the eye from afar another samaritan killed in a horror movie for being good christy doesn't waste time mourning and speeds off as soon as she's so yeah you can't see ivan at this point but he just goes ahead and you know, does a long uh, kill shot here, and yeah. And she's a smart girl. She's like, well, there ain't nothing I can do, whole ass. Take this car. Let's go. Because he's a real son of a bitch. But his six cylinders lose out to her spirit and a good fender, and she's able to run him off the road, causing yes. a bit of a bingo. Her satisfaction is short-lived. Just when she thinks she's in the clear, Mick calmly pulls out his rifle and blows out her back tire, sending the car crashing on the side of the road. Ah! And like I said, once again, this is why I couldn't sit down in this movie. It's just like, oh, yes, they're gonna... No! All right. This car stunt was performed by Paul Lightfoot, brother of the movie's producer, David Lightfoot, with their sister acting as set nurse. They're gonna try and kill my little brother <laughs> Great work on the stunt, Paul. I was sad to learn that producer David Lightfoot passed away last year of a heart attack, way too young at 61. Rest in peace. When he reaches the wreckage, Mick watches Christy crawl away for a while before impassively shooting her from the hip. No uh, more games and no more giggles from this guy. Just one more bullet to make sure she's dead. Damn. God, damn it, this is miserable. One more shout out to the lead actresses, Kesty Morassi and Cassandra McGrath. Roles like theirs are exhausting, having to constantly act out a state of terror. You guys, uh, confession, I always wanted to be in a horror movie, like maybe low budget, but I just feel like it would be so fun either to be uh, the killer or be killed. It would just be really fun, I feel like. Hey, if anybody out there needs an actress, well, they Oh, oh, that's me. Often nail their takes on the first go, which McLean credits for helping get the movie shot on schedule. Also an asset in that regard was cinematographer Will Gibson, who McLean called a human dolly. Dude would do all <laughs> sorts of stunt shoots, affixed to vehicles and hanging off of ledges to get his shots. That's awesome, man. Mick gives Christy and the older guy a Jedi funeral, and I guess that about does it for Wolf Creek. So yeah, um, he puts the bodies in the car and sets it on fire and just like, yeah, just in the middle of nowhere doing whatever he wants. Let's get to the no. Oh shit, I forgot about Ben. This supermassive game continues by switching to our last remaining playable character. He wakes up crucified in a wing of mixed dungeon next to another tourist who won't be seeing this. Y'all, the thing is, he is literally crucified with nails through his hands. He's looking like Jesus up here. Uh, and terrified, but uh, uh, this is for no good reason. Okay, so, and there's like a mummified, horrendous looking, you know, it's not just a head on a stick, it's a whole body on a stick. Sights anymore. The blood still looks wet, so I'm obligated to count it. Like I said, it's a long standing rule to count fresh dead feet. Ben is sick of these motherfucking nails through his motherfucking wrists. <laughs> 
pulls his arm off them in what I believe was the last shot oh. during production. Great use of practical so hard to watch. Team led by Rick Connolly, who also made the headless corpse in Mick's shack. Freed from his crucifixion, Ben busts out of the cave like it's Easter Sunday. He drools his way across. That would be fun. Is it just me? That would be fun to like be doing special effects and you know making the corpses like look real and dressing them. Yes, I'm a weirdo. Awesome postcards before passing out from exhaustion beyond the black stump. He's roused from his nap by a fedora silhouette. Ah! This time, it's just a couple of German tourists. Shit! At first, it looks it looks just like um the killer. It's his silhouette with the hat, but it's like he said, just some German tourists. Guten Tag. Drive him to Calvary for medical attention. And the last we see him, Ben's being taken into custody on suspicions of murdering his friends. No. Thankfully, some text at the end says. After four months in police custody, Ben Mitchell was later cleared of all suspicion. He currently lives in South Australia. What? He's British? He no, no, no. This guy was in Sydney. The girls were British. Oh, okay. All right. Get it straight. He avoided a booting sentence and was cleared of all charges. The movie ends with Mick Taylor walking into the Australian sunset, cross-dissolving his way to an eventual sequel. How many blokes got choked and Sheila's got Keela? <laughs> I can't even handle this guy, y'all. <laughs> Courtney just used to like piss me off and now I embrace it. I love it. The, the stupider the pun, the better anyway. Um, so that was the uh, Wolf Creek, the actual movie. I haven't seen Wolf Creek too. I guess I have to do my homework and do that. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed this part. Now we're going to get into the rest of the scary, scary truth. But I thought it would be good to first because it is some heavy stuff, you know. I thought first it would be great to like have a laugh talk about the actual movie and uh go from there so here we go okay let's get into it i love a good documentary and i've done my fair share on <laughs> this segment here um this, what I'm about to play for you is from the 7 News Spotlight, uh, published on June 25th, 2019. Ivan Malat, uh, Australia's most feared serial killer is the title, as I said, from 7 News Spotlight. Um, they are definitely an Australian news agency. Okay, so... <laughs> I try to get all the details. I don't want to get too bogged down in it, but I'm learning some new ones even right now as I'm researching. And this is a great documentary. We are about to hear from Boris Malot, who is Ivan's brother. Now, <laughs> Ivan was one of 14 children and 10 of them were boys. So here is what Boris had to say in his interview which he doesn't do a lot of because he gets very emotional and honestly it was kind of touching to see like how emotional he got this poor man like I've said before I feel awful for the victims the victims families and everyone else that's impacted um but also you know what about the other families too on the other side of it it's just all horrendous anyway here we go Boris speaks about the Malat family. The Malat family is a quite unusual family. Uh, Ivan's father uh, was a Croatian, wasn't here that long before he met his wife. They married a couple of years later. She started almost from the day they were married uh, having children. 
Uh, I think it was uh, 14 children they had. Ivan Milat's my brother, my younger brother. What's it like carrying them around, Nick? Bad. Bad, bad, bad. Boris Milat hasn't spoken publicly since this interview I did with him a few years ago because of the anger it sparked within the Milat family. They didn't want you to do this interview, did they? Definitely did not want me to do this interview. Much of our conversation has never been broadcast until now. What was life like back then for Ivan and for you? I mean... It was just out of control. It was out of control. Smart ass running around, out of control. Going out, getting into trouble with, you know, different guys and, and girls and things. You talked before about Ivan having a, a cruel streak about him. At what age did you first see that? I'd seen that probably, it was pretty normal up until about 12, 14. And I started to see that, I heard about that from the, his mates, you know, they'd all boast about, they'd go out at night and do things. And you know, with machetes, I hear tell, he cut a dog in half with a machete and all that, while he was growing up. Were you concerned about him back then? Oh, I knew where he, I knew he was on a one-way trip. <laughs> I knew that. It was just a matter of how long. He was going to kill somebody from the from the age of ten, I'd say. You know, it was built into him. It, he had a different psychic. He was a psychopath, and it, it just manifested itself and manifested itself with, uh, you know, I can do anything. The Malats grew up with knives and guns as part of everyday life. They'd spend afternoons shooting at targets in their parents' market garden. We've all owned guns since we were seven, six and seven. We used to have to sit mat boxes on the end of the tomato beds, which was about 20 metres away, and um, knock them over. Okay, folks, so we're going to take it way back to Ivan Malat's early life so we can have a little bit of a, you know, better understanding and recognition of trying to understand what is happening here. So just to recap, when, you know, he was fifth born out of 14 kids, his sister Margaret did die in a car crash close to the home when he was pretty young. And um, I think one of his, one of his brothers, Richard, or maybe Wally, I don't know, one of those crazies just uh, went ahead and ran back to the house. Anyway, Ivan witnessed it. It was traumatic. You would think that someone would have empathy who's been through a situation like that. But, you know, there can be a bad seed or genetic fuck up wherever. Maybe, maybe it was too hot down there, but <laughs> the others didn't do that. Anyway, reeling it back in once again. So when he was, he confessed to his brother Boris when he was about 14, 15, they started committing robberies with his brothers. And uh, a few of the Malat boys did some pretty serious time, uh, including Ivan, Boris, um, Richard, Wally. Anyway, I, I name most of them, but you know, they were kind of career criminals. There was 14 of them. It was just freaking mayhem 
in their house. So like we said, his dad was a Croatian immigrant worker and his mom was an Australian. Um, and they got married when she was 16. He was significantly older. Um, it doesn't say here in this article, but I read that multiple places. So yeah, born in Liverpool, Australia. Many of the 10 Malat boys were well-known to local police, and Malat displayed antisocial behavior at a young age, leading to a stint in a residential school at age 13. And y'all, I can't imagine what a residential school at age 13 in freaking Australia in the 60s must have been like. I'm sure terrible things happened there. By age 17, he was in the juvenile detention center for theft, and at age 19, he was involved in a shop break-in. Okay, let me say, so Boris, uh, Ivan confessed to Boris when Boris was about age 17, or Ivan was age 17, right in there. Um, he actually said that it was a robbery gone wrong, but he shot a taxi cab driver. This taxi cab driver did end up surviving, however... He was paralyzed um, in his back. Ivan told Boris that he was trying to rob him and the gun misfired. I don't buy that shit. Um, I think he was just, you know, terrible from the get-go. But anyway, so like I said, the taxi cab uh, driver, he did live. He was a father. He was a husband. Someone who was innocent ended up doing time for this crime. Ivan got away with it. Because, and this is what Boris also stated, he still had hope for him. Ivan was still young. They were all fuck-ups, you know. He hoped that this terrible streak wasn't, this wasn't quite a thought yet. He was still hopeful for his little brother at this point, because Boris is older. So, like I said, this other person ended up actually admitting to the crime because they thought they were protecting their younger sibling. They thought their younger brother did this. So, the other person confessed in any way. What a fuck up. So by age 17, he was in juvenile detention for theft. By 19, he was involved in uh, break-ins, robberies. He'd been doing this for years at this point. In 1964, he did about 18 months for a break-in and entering. And a month after he was <clears throat> released, he was arrested for driving a stolen car and sentenced to two years hard labor. Is that like parole, probation? I'm not sure. In September 67, age 22, he was sentenced to three years for theft. So as you see, there's a pattern emerging here. In April 71, Malat was charged with the abduction of two 18-year-old hitchhikers, one of whom he raped. While waiting trial, he was involved in a string of robberies with some of his brothers before faking his suicide and fle fleeing to New Zealand for a year. Y'all, and the way he did this was, there's a place called The Gap, I guess, the huge cliffs, drop-offs in Australia, where some people do go to in their own lives. And he left his shoes there to make it look like, because when you're going to end your life, you put your shoes there. Okay. Just trying to make it make sense. Um, just a sadistic fuck. So... He went there for about a year and then he was told, and this was true, that his mother was very sick, ill. I, maybe she had, she had a heart attack and was, you know, still living at this point. And so he came home for mama. 
Um, so he was arrested in 74. The robbery and kidnap cases against him failed at trial with the help of the Malott family lawyer, also called a barrister, John Marston. What a fuck. Malott took on a job as a truck driver in 75. Hmm, on the road, I see patterns. By the time of his arrest, he had worked on and off for the Roads and Traffic Authority for 20 years. Wow. So, uh, yeah, you'll see another commonality with the other quote-unquote backpack murderer that this is something they have in common. They have jobs which keep them on the road and in transit. Um, yeah, so that just gives you a little bit of the background. But l- let me recap. In April 71, he was charged with the abduction of two 18-year-old hitchhikers, one of whom he raped. This is a story in itself, which I'm about to visit. And the police really dropped the ball on this one. And one of the women's quick thinking really did end up saving both her and her friend's life. So we're about to get to that. All right, folks, and welcome to this segment of the show. This I am pulling from YouTube. It's called Ivan Malat, the Backpack Serial Killer Crime Documentary. This has been published by Crime Vault. Um, and it, it looks like it was shortly after that uh, he passed away in 2019. So let's hear what they have to say about the victims and this timeline. He was a bit. in the area his whole life and picked off travelers who were often alone or in need of a ride. The details of this terrifying real case include violent deaths, burials in shallow graves, and even a copycat crime committed many years later by Malat's great-nephew, Michael. Belanglo State Forest is located between Sydney and Canberra in the southern part of Australia. It is a popular place for outdoor recreation, filled with camping spots, creeks to fish in, and paths designed for four-wheel drive vehicles. It is also the place where Malat encountered and killed at least seven people. He lived nearby and chose the area because he knew the terrain and its many places to hide the bodies. Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark were the first of Malat's victims to be found in Belanglo State Forest. Both were British tourists backpacking through Australia. Their bodies were discovered in September 1992. The two women left London hoping to spend an extended period of time in Australia, possibly working as fruit pickers, but after leaving Sydney in April 1992 they were never seen again. Hikers first found Walters, who was buried in a shallow grave. The next day police officers located Clark. Walters had been stabbed 14 times, once in the neck, 9 in the back, and 4 in the chest. Clark was shot multiple times, and police believed she might have been used for target practice based on the grouping of the bullets. James Gibson was an Australian visiting the area from his hometown of Melbourne. He was traveling with his girlfriend Deborah Everest when they both disappeared in 1989. Gibson's belongings were found in Galston Gorge, near the side of the road that same year. Malat had a predilection for picking up hitchhikers, which led some to believe the couple was trying to hitch a ride. Gibson's skeletonized remains were found in Belanglo State Forest in October 1993. Forensic researchers discovered his spine had been severed by a sharp blade. He had also been stabbed upwards of eight times. Everest was stabbed once in the back, but, according to forensic experts, that did not kill her. Instead, she was beaten to death. Her skull and jaw were both fractured in multiple places. 
Australian police sergeant Jeff Trichter found the bodies of Anya Habsheed, Gabor Norgebauer, and their friend Simone Schmidl in the same area of Belanglo State Forest. They were all visiting Australia from Germany and had gone backpacking in the forest. They had last been spotted hitchhiking in 1991. Habsheed's body was found in a shallow grave stabbed eight different times. She had also been decapitated and to this day her head has not been found. Oh. Norgebauer had been killed with a gun as he was shot in the head six times. Three of the gunshots entered at the base of the skull and would have killed him instantly. Malat stabbed Schmidl many times, eight to be exact, and two of the wounds severed her spinal cord. Aww. The other wounds were to her heart and lungs, and unlike her friends, Schmidl wasn't buried. Instead, Malat left her on the ground in the same area. Seriously. Like a busy mustn't. Like, seriously, sorry about the truly commercial, but you know how it bees. Uh, so yeah, pretty brutal stuff. Are you doing okay? Let's continue. Was backpacking in Belanglo State Forest when he encountered Milat. Paul Onions. According to Onions, Milat picked him up on the side of the road while he was hitchhiking to his destination. At first, Milat, who told Onions his name was Bill, seemed pretty nice. They chatted the entire way to the forest. Onions was on his way to Victoria, but at the entrance of the woods Malat pulled over, saying he wanted to look for a cassette tape. It was at that point Onions became leery of his companion. Just then, Malat pulled out a revolver, told Onions he was going to rob him, and then wrestled him to the ground. Oh, fuck no! Malat let out a shot but missed Onions, who kept running down the road. He threw himself into the path of an oncoming car, Oh, let me just say, Paul Onions ran in a zigzag fashion because he had just got out of the British Navy and he knew that if you were being shot at, you're supposed to run in a zigzag pattern. Oh, I thought that was just for alligators chasing you, but bullets too, I guess. He he lived, so. Jumped into the back seat and told the woman to keep driving. Onions eventually testified against Malat. After police arrested Malat in 1994, they found his house was full of items from the victims he killed. Aww. He had the cameras, wallets, pieces of the clothing, and the camping gear. Police also recovered several photographs of Malat, dated in 1991, that showed him carrying items belonging to his Australian victims, Deborah Everest and James Aww. Gibson. The creepiest part, though, is that police believe Malat wore some of his victims' clothes. There are even reports Malat gave one of Caroline Clark's shirts to his girlfriend at the time. Malat's official body count stands at seven. However, since he didn't plead guilty, nor did he give an official statement to the police, there is no way of knowing how many people he killed. Malat maintained his innocence, shifting the blame to his brother Richard. The Belanglo State Forest near Berrimer, Australia, where the bodies were found, consisted of plenty of places to hide bodies, which means that some of Ivan's victims might yet be discovered. As of 2003, Australian officials were trying to link him to several missing nurses. In 2010, bones were found near the site of Malat's other murders, though police debate whether he was responsible for them, and in 2013, a police commissioner said he believes the body of an 18-year-old found stabbed and shot is possibly another one of his victims. After killing his victims, Malat buried the bodies in an eerily similar way for reasons he has never disclosed. First he would put them face down on the ground with their hands behind their back. He would then build a pyramid on the back made of sticks and so ferns. So they can't see him. He always buried his bodies close to fire trails, but not necessarily designated paths. And the first bodies were found completely by accident. In 1971, when he was 27, Malat was arrested for raping two hitchhikers. The women said he threatened them with a knife during the attack. 
Unfortunately, the prosecution dropped the ball, and since this was before DNA evidence was used in court, Malat was found not guilty. And listen, y'all, I found this woman. At some point, one of these survivors, um, these women from the 1971 um, case, I cannot find her interview anywhere, but basically, to sum it up, it was her and her friend. They were 18. He basically says... Let me, you know, screw around with one of you and I'll let you live. And so she has to watch her friend be raped. But then she somehow convinces him like she's feeling really sick. Please pull over at this gas station. I just need a ginger ale or something. Walks in the gas station and says exactly out loud what is happening. And a group of men surround the car and the women survive. Isn't that amazing? But of course, they dropped the ball. And I can't find this amazing story of these surviving women anywhere, but just had to include that. By a jury. Things might have turned out differently had he been found guilty and sentenced to prison. Many believe Milat had help in killing his seven victims, with one possible co-conspirator being his sister. What? Judge Justice David Hunt said after Milat's trial he was convinced the killer could not have done his crimes alone, and a juror on the case made similar claims after the trial. Malat's own lawyer pointed at both Malat's brother and his sister, who shared a house with Malat at the time of the killings. Okay. One key piece of evidence indicting Malat's sister, theorists said, is that cigarette butts were found near the body of Caroline Clark. Malat was not a smoker, but his sister was. Police said they interviewed the sister on several occasions, but had no reason to believe she was directly involved. However, new forensic... Okay, they did find cigarette butts with her DNA at the crime scene, though, and that is kind of weird, and I hate to say it, but I bet... There was something more than a little brotherly, sisterly love going on there. Music evidence unveiled in July 2018 suggests that Malat acted alone. Strands of hair found in victim Joanne Walters' hand were revealed to be her own, not that of an unnamed accomplice. The way in which the hair was positioned in Walters' hand suggests that she was protecting her face during her final moments. <coughs> After spending less than one year in Maitland Prison, Malat and one of his fellow inmates, George Savas, tried to escape. The attempt took place in May 1997 and resulted in Malat being moved to a higher security prison. Authorities apparently knew the two were going to try to escape several weeks beforehand and thwarted the plan before it was in action. After Malat was moved to a maximum security prison, Goulburn Prison, Savas killed himself in his cell. Okay, bye. Michael Malat, Ivan's great-nephew, and his friend, Cohen Klein, both 19, killed 17-year-old David Ortolani in Belanglo State Forest in 2010. Ortolani was hit in the head with an axe and left close to where some of Ivan's victims were found. All right, I'm going to stop it right there because I don't want to... That's another case that we're going to do on its own. Um, as I mentioned, we have that trifecta going on. So I just wanted you to hear a little bit about the victims and how they were found. Most of them were in pairs. Um, they were all found in Belangelo State Forest. Uh, he really knew this area from, you know, working on the roads. And I think he might have worked in that park or state park or something. Or the roads in the state park at some point in time. But regardless, um, <clears throat> most of them were in pairs. And remember that very first guy that he accidentally, um, you know, the guy, the taxi driver he was trying to rob, but he survived. Yeah, well, that became his thing to sever these people in the spine and make them suffer. So the ones that were in pairs would be brutally alive but unable to move. I can't, I can't even imagine that, you guys. I cannot even imagine. So we're going to get a little bit more into the story. I apologize. This has become a freaking two-hour podcast episode. 
maybe I should have done it in two pieces, but I'm making up for lost time. I have had other things going on and I've been working on this for a while, so it is past due time. You just get your overload of Glenny. Yay! Okay, so we got to hear from Boris, who is completely on uh, clearly the right side of the fence here. And then we have the rest of the family. Of course, when something like this happens in a family, it can absolutely divide a family, depending on guilt, innocence, and where, you know, people's thoughts and hopes and bias, whatever, lies. Um, best we can hope for is justice. But anyway, regardless, I want you to hear from the 60 Minutes Australia clip when the interviewer is sitting down with two of the brothers and one of the sister-in-law. Um, her name is Carolyn. She's a, a lovely redhead with her husband's arm around her. And um, her husband is William, I believe. Yeah, William. And the other brother there is Richard or Dick. No, they just call him Richard. Uh, so anyway, I want you to hear from the other side. And this is years ago this was back in the 90s when he was um arrested but not yet convicted but being held so i want you guys to hear the other flip side of the coin here we go it might be a little bit long but it'll it's so good it'll all fit in later promise just listen throughout the investigation in the belanglo forest and then at the trial it was always suspected that more than one person was involved in the murder of the backpackers. Six of the backpackers had been killed in pairs, and in varying ways too. And with those who were shot, more than one weapon had been used. Also, bullets had been fired from several directions. Then at the trial, it was Malat's own barrister who pointed the finger at others in the family, including more than one weapon had been used. Also, bullets had been fired from several directions. Then at the trial, it was Malat's own barrister who pointed the finger at others in the family, including Richard Malat, the man here on the left. With Richard are his brother William and William's wife, Carolyn. There can be absolutely no doubt that whoever committed all eight offences must be within the Malat family or very, very closely associated to it. Can you see that? No. Why would your brother's counsel say that blind Freddy can see that and you can't? I've got no idea. I'm not a lawyer. I've got no idea at all. Mr. Richard Malat, you'd be aware, I take it, that there's been widespread speculation that two men were involved in the murders. Well, they say anything. And the two men most suspected were one you and the other your brother, Walter. Well, that's what they say. What do you say? Well, I say it's got no truth at all. You didn't do it? No. Had nothing to do with it? Nothing to do with it. At the trial, Richard Malat was subjected to intense cross-examination about involvement in the murders, as was another brother, Walter, but Walter was not prepared to be interviewed. 
Now, nobody has suggested that Mr. William Malat was himself involved in the murders, but he and his wife, Carolyn, provided Ivan with alibis as to his whereabouts on crucial dates. It was at William and Carolyn's home on the New South Wales Southern Tablelands that this interview was recorded. When this happens to a family, people have no idea how it destroys you inside. Um, we are destroyed. In fact, my, fam my entire family, my extended family, we're all destroyed. If, if for argument's sake, that he did do it there, the, I, I could tell you now, I, I, I for one would not support him in the way we've supported him over it. There, whoever done this crime should pay the penalty and there's i've got no question no question whatsoever about that well, what would you need to convince you that your brother did it he would have to tell us he would have to use those words i did it and then i would believe him but um he has actually said to me i have not done this and i believe him with all my soul i believe him you wouldn't be telling a lie, would you? No, I'm definitely not telling a lie. No, not when you take a witness stand and you're, you're told that you, you must tell the truth. No way in this world. Would you uh, lie to protect yourself and other members of your family? Well, what sort of question is that? Would you lie to make a dollar on your job? No, I wouldn't. Would you lie to protect yourself? Would you lie to protect your job? Would you lie and say that you never cheated on tax? Yeah. Would you lie and say you never did anything? I don't cheat on tax. You don't lie and cheat on anything? No. I've got no calms about it. No, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't, I don't say I'd lie to protect anybody. Ivan Malat was also known as Bill, Bargo Bill, Joe Spanner, Tex and Texas. But to his family, though, he was known simply as Mac. Well, let's talk a little bit about Ivan. I mean, you're closer to him in age. Do you, uh, could you tell me about his school days at Patrician Brothers School at Liverpool? Can you remember them? He's pretty in with it. He's pretty smart. You know, he's, um, he didn't like school. Like, I know that, but neither did any of us like school very much at the time. Did you get on well with him? Mac, yeah, I get them very well with Mac. Was he a violent man? No. Never? Never a violent man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I... I don't think any of the brothers are violent people. You know that? Most of the people that know us as a family there know us for what we've done in the past and the way we've conducted ourselves there there's other people who don't know us they're going to see us as black two-headed monsters and that and that we're not the day mrs carolyn Malat gave evidence there was much tension in the courtroom and some release out on the streets mr william Malat faces a charge of assault as a result of this incident earlier in his evidence, Mr. Malat had provided Ivan with an alibi as to his whereabouts on Boxing Day 1991, the day the two German backpackers were murdered. 
According to William, his brother had been with him on that crucial day. Mr. William Malata, the evidence you gave in the court was as to the whereabouts of your brother Ivan on Boxing Day in 91. Yes. You said he was at your mother's place. Yep. Boxing Day is a, a family gathering day because Boxing Day used to be day. Okay, I have to pause it right there because what you just heard was the <laughs> the brother that was just defending him sitting there with the wife with his arm around his wife William and then beating that cameraman's ass on the street and you know I'm not talking about a little like kind of like a uh you know I mean he was beating his ass so that was the day that his wife gave testimony and the major thing to take from this is they're all covering for him. They're creating an alibi. I'm not going to play the whole long clip, although it's entertaining and you should check it out. But especially how aggressively Richard came at that interviewer. Oh, would you lie to make a buck? Would, would you? No, I wouldn't. No, I don't cheat on my tax. It may neither. <laughs> it's like maybe not the smartest bunch. They also call Carolyn out later, <clears throat> the sister-in-law, for changing dates on um, a photo album to, you know, corroborate that. And it's not like she just got a day wrong. She put a different year. She changed like 91 to 92 or vice versa, whatever, depending, saying that, yeah, they were together. Um, and you know what we'll find out later? They were together. Um, they were together. So I'm just going to pause it right there, regroup a little bit, and then bring you back into the story. Hang on. All right, so this is the interview with the sister-in-law many, many years later. Um, this was just recently filmed, honestly, because he died in 2019, I believe. We'll revisit that in a moment. I just want you to hear her speak about growing up, how she met the Malat family, what their reputation was, and just some of the details from an insider. So here we go. There was Joe Noah Resty but that's the man I knew that was a nice person, didn't have guns. I had to pause it. Whoa, sister, there's so many pictures of him with guns. He built his own homemade silencer. Continue. And was it really violent? Maureen was once married to Ivan's brother, Wally. Has the place changed much since you were here as a young man? Oh, yeah. Yes, a great deal, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot busier. Yeah. Um, curve and guttering wasn't there. Maureen was just 14 or 15 when she started hanging out with the Malats here at the old family home. Taking us back to the 70s, you can still see Wally's name etched into their concrete driveway. What was it about the Malat boys that you liked so much? I guess you're just coming into puberty and it's boys and they were next door and they didn't, well, they weren't at school. They weren't your school friends. Um, they were always a bit rugged, they played with cars, and like probably what attracted me to Wally was he never wore any shoes, just jeans and no shirt. He was quite muscly and um, he was all right to talk. Listen, y'all, I'm sorry, but I can't imagine how fucking hot, even back in the day, it was in Australia with this man wearing jeans. I cannot, I, I can't imagine what that smelled like, balls and all. Okay, continue. Or two. 
the teenager had to wait a little while to meet Ivan, who was then serving time for armed robbery. On his release, whether it was true or not, he told Maureen a tale that was disturbingly prophetic. One particular time he um, picked me up and he drove me home. On the way home, I, I said, oh, you're in jail. Um, what did you go to jail for? Did you murder somebody? Because I thought that's what people went to jail for. And he said, yeah, he said, I um, killed a man with a knife and I buried him in the bush. Okay, and he was laughing and I don't know whether it was a true thing or a, a story. Denial, sister yes. friend. I'll never know. What does your gut tell you? What does your instinct tell you? Deep down, I think it was true. I just don't want to think that he could be capable of doing something like that. Well, he's capable of doing that and plus plenty more. Yeah, exactly. But at the time, I just... I couldn't do that. He's too nice. Back then, Maureen found her brother-in-law charming and attentive. Sometimes while he'd go off shooting and he might come and... Hey, yo, this is her wedding picture with her next to Wally. And her and Ivan are closer in this wedding photo than she and her new husband. Okay, continue. Visit me. So while Wally was shooting, mm. Ivan was visiting you. Yes. Were you intimate with Ivan? Mm. That's a part of my life I'm not really proud of, but I had it been. At certain points, not all the time. Not all the time? And just things happen on and off, maybe a year or so. Not a long time. Did you think at any stage that you might have been in love with Ivan or that there was a future with Ivan? You know, way back there was probably a fantasy because he was muscly and attractive that way. But no, a fantasy of what? You know, oh yeah, look alright. But yeah, when you think, oh, I don't want you, f I don't want you for a husband. <laughs> How do you feel now, knowing that you did have a relationship with a, a serial killer, mm. a psychopath? Yeah, it's a bit, a bit creepy. Mm. Yeah, I just don't like to think about that. I think she got a dark side. Ivan was clearly used to taking what he wanted, as well as Maureen. He had an affair with another sister-in-law, Marilyn who had his child, a daughter named Lenice. Ivan's brother, Boris, who was married to Marilyn at the time, raised the child as his own, despite the deception. How long was Ivan Milat having an affair with your wife? Apparently it never stopped. And I really wanted to walk away from the whole lot, but there was a little girl involved and... Uh... Did you think Lenice was your daughter? I, knew, I always knew that she wasn't my daughter because I suspected what was going on. Did you and Ivan have a blow-up? Did you say Okay, I just have to interject real quick. So we've established a former sister-in-law admits having the affair, Carolyn, who was married to Wally. And now we have Boris saying that, yes, the daughter that he raised was basically an adopted daughter. I can relate. And he he knew that that was biologically Ivan's child but that this little girl needed a, a father a daddy so he stepped up god I love Boris the more interviews I watch with him I'm like damn thank you you somebody 
be the black sheep of justice in the family. Okay. Anyway, so Ivan, I just want to go ahead and throw this in there. As long as we're talking about family affairs, he also married a woman named Karen. Karen was pregnant at the time they met. Also, Karen was engaged to Ivan's cousin. Yes. Okay, well, uh, let's continue. Jim, you are having an affair with my wife. This has got to yeah, stop. Yeah. Or, oh, yeah. or what happened? I just said to him, well, leave me alone. Leave I her alone? But when I called him up in the house a second time, something said to me, something's not right. I ripped the cupboard door open. There he is inside. That must have been a door. Shivering and shaking like this. Yeah. I said, I ought to kill you. I ought to kill you now. And, uh, and shivering and shaking. <laughs> Can I just ask, considering what Ivan Milat went on to do, does any part of you wish that you had shot him, that you had killed him? People have said that to me. Even the police have said that to me. You should have shot him. Well, you know, no, I'm not they saying you should have. I'm just saying, do you wish you had of? If I know he was going to harm these people, yes. But uh, it's not in me to take a life unless I'm defending my own. Okay, so that's a little bit about the past. And, you know, it kind of annoys me when people say things like, it's not my character on trial. It kind of is. It's not like every single thing you do is going down on your permanent record. But shit, when stuff like this happens, obviously going all the way back into childhood. So yes, it does matter. Yes, (laughs) things like this from a start, they they definitely matter. And if any of the signs, I know it was what, like arson, murdering uh, animals, and there's one other thing I can't remember of the triad of psychopath killer. But anyway, I wanted you to hear from those that knew him since way back in the day, what he was all about, y'all. Okay, so grab a snack, grab a beverage if you need to. Uh, we're gonna take a quick little break and come right back with more juicy details. A second body, showing even more signs of decay, was found on Sunday under a fallen tree. It's expected Caroline Clark's body will be positively identified tomorrow when dental records arrive from England. Everyone around our town was talking about the, the bodies that had been found in Palangalum Forest. Everybody you would speak to had something to say about it. I don't think anyone had any suspicion at all that Ivan was up to any bad things down there. I don't believe Ivan had any sort of psychological problem. He was always a bit of a loner. You know, he he never confided in people. Like at work, he would never get around with a group of guys and discuss his personal life. He would never do that. He was a very nice man when I met him, and uh, then from, from that moment on, we just became friends. And throughout that period of time, um, 
Bill and I got married and um, I would come to our place for dinner once a week. Then later on we used to swap books. He always would tell me about books that he has read and he'd say, oh, you have to read this one. You know, this one was really good. Well, he used to read four yards, cowboy books, you know, the paperbacks from comedies, you know, love stories, murder mysteries, read a lot of them. Police have broadened their inquiry into the deaths of two British backpackers to cover the mystery disappearances of other foreign tourists. Three young Germans, all in their early 20s, have been missing in New South Wales since last Christmas. It was clear that a serial killer was on the loose, his victims over-trusting backpackers. I think it's fair to say that given that we now have seven bodies recovered, and notwithstanding that we don't know the cause of death in the present case, that we do have a serial killer. I was the officer in charge of the backpack investigation. When the second lot of bodies were found in the forest in October of 93, we had an emerging picture of an offender who apparently spent more and more time at the scene. And that's not inconsistent with serial killers. Um, the pattern they often exhibit is one of increasing control of going back and, uh, and after each murder, reflecting on the incident, getting a level of satisfaction out of it, but saying, in effect, I can do it better next time. More human remains were found in the area known as Executioner's Drop. The skeleton was located off a fire trail about 1,200 metres east of where the remains of backpackers James Gibson... There was nothing, nothing at all odd about Ivan's behaviour. In my mind, Ivan never had a secret side to him. He was a very genuine person. What you see is what you get. Oh, well, everybody could have a secret side that you could hide from somebody. If there was anything missing with Ivan, I, I feel like it, he might have had a conscience, or he didn't, to me it seemed like he didn't have a soul or a conscience. It felt like as if he was just selfish and did what he wanted to do. He used to like the excitement sort of life, you know, the, um, always the sort of like, like wanted to be on the edge. He had no fear, there was nobody, it didn't matter who. He was just absolutely fearless. Okay, so just a little bit more um, of the interviews from back in the day when this was uh, all first going down with his arrest and conviction and whatnot. So um, they're just going to talk about, you know, how they are at the family home. They've been watching, et cetera, so on. But at this point, Carolyn, who in the future us already know that she's been hooking up and banging Ivan. Mm-hmm. Now we know what her deal was. Uh they have a little phone call from jail and it's just pretty uh, kind of sadistic. Listen. And from then on, they just kept coming. All helicopters started flying straight overhead. And then from then on, they were just all over the yard, searching everywhere. I'm not quite sure. I was just grabbing all sorts of stuff. 
what we did find was a veritable gold mine. At several of the properties we found clothing and other things, backpacks and that belonging to various victims. The house belonging to Ivan Milat is now being examined brick by brick. The investigation is far from over. I first met Ivan Milat at the Campbelltown police station when he'd been arrested. He struck me simply as being a very silent type who lacked any form of emotion, but also gave a very strong air of confidence and you had the feeling that he was saying in his own mind, they haven't got anything on me, they're going to have to let me go, I will beat this. And that was very clear from his attitude. We visited Ivan when he was in the jail in Sydney. And during that visit, I wanted and I needed to ask him, did you do this? I needed it for, for closure for myself. I needed to find out whether this was going to be the last time I saw him or not because I'd already made up my mind if he had done it, that was it. I was not going to visit him anymore. And he just turned and he said to me, Carol, I didn't do it. And I just needed to hear him say those words. And Sorry, Carol, just like you needed him to put his penis inside of you multiple times while your husband was away doing whatever. But I'm sorry, Carol. We should know even at this point in our life that hookups do not good people make. And he has say, said those words for the last 10 years. When they said it was Ivan Milat that was in, I knew then that Ivan would never see the light of day. Because I'd have it in the streets again. And the whole family sort of went into denial. I didn't. I didn't. I noticed the rest of the family swung in behind him real quick. They all swung in real quick raised money, did this, got solicitors, barristers, did everything. Mr Martin asked, what if Mr Onions has wrongly identified Mr Ivan Malat because of family resemblance to Richard Malat? He asked if perhaps Richard was Paul Onions' attacker. During the trial, the lawyer pointed his finger at Richard. We just could not believe that he was going to point the finger at one of the brothers. We we were shocked that he would do that because it absolutely shattered Richard and I had never seen Richard looking like stone. He was he was absolutely like stone. Yeah, we, we go down to the courthouse and having some sort of meeting and kind of say that it weren't him, it might have been his brothers. Well, I was not phased by that at all. I got, like I said, Every day of anybody went missing or anything happened, I was working at my borrow job. Uh, I was at home with ten people. For his part, Ivan Malat sat quietly during most of this morning's appearance, but broke his silence to tell the court he was happy with Mr Bowe's submissions. I honestly believed he would be found innocent. Honestly believed. And Andrew Bowe rang us early and he said, OK, the verdict's in. He said, get ready. So... Bill and I were diving into clothes and next thing there's a news flash and it said that he'd been found guilty. I was in the process of getting dressed at the time and I just froze. I just could not believe it. 51-year-old Ivan Milat was this really Carol murdering the backpackers in the Belangolo State Forest, south of Sydney. He's smiling as they drag him out in handcuffs. He's got a big ass Having smirk on his Ivan, face. I didn't expect him to admit to anything. 
and I did not expect him to show any remorse. Well, I, I honestly thought that he had been found not guilty, and I was as surprised as anybody when they said he was guilty. It didn't even faze me one bit because basically I had him uh, locked up and convicted the day he was arrested. There's no way that anyone's going to take anyone's life because life is very precious, not only for men, for animals and everyone. Everything in, in my books, and it really is. You don't play around with murder. You don't play around with that. Can't. I would like to think Mum wouldn't have either. I would like to think that. But my bones tell me that Mum's loyalty is, is, is strength. I just thought, what a relief. Relief that this horrible thing wouldn't go on anymore. And I just want to take a moment as they're showing us this this plaque at Belanglo State Forest where all of his victims, um, the ones that were found that we know of anyway, um, it was seven of them and they were charged with seven life sentences. And I just want to read you off their names real quick in their countries. Um, there was Carolyn Jane Clark. She was from the UK. There was Deborah Phyllis Everest. She was from Australia as well as James Harold Gibson also an Australian. Anya Harbsheed was from Germany. Gabor Kurt, oh, I'm sorry for murder, ah, getting the names badly. Neugraler, Simone Loretta Schmiedel from Germany as well. And let me get the last two here for you guys. Joanne, there's the other, yep. Simone Loretta Schmidl from Germany, and then Joanne Leslie Walters from the UK. So I do apologize if there's some background noise. Apparently, we be clubbing down here. Okay, so Ivan had a few survivors that we know of. I'm sure there's plenty of others that who we don't know of that are survivors and or victims. So right now you're going to hear from Paul Onions and this is I don't know when but this is way back in the day. So this is not too far after Ivan's arrest. So we're talking about like 94 I believe. So listen up. Police were closing in but the investigation would ultimately hinge on one eyewitness, the one who got away to tell of the terror they must have all felt. You were wandering along here? Yes. Looking for something to drink? Yeah. So it all comes back? Oh, yeah. As Paul Onions told 60 Minutes in his one and only ever interview, it was January 1990 when he accepted Look at 60 the minutes flex. of a ride. This is where the uh, journey starts. And you meet your first Australian. Yeah. That man was Ivan Malat. How unfortunate. As Malat drove toward his killing ground, Paul began to sense him getting edgy. Roger Maynard, who closely followed the case, says Onion's gut instinct saved his life that day. He was driving down the highway with Malat. 
let stops on the side of the road, ostensibly to get a cassette out to put in the uh, uh, his radio. That, that was his excuse, really, to get some cassettes from under the seat to put it, put some music on. Well, he just seemed odd because there was actually cassettes in between us. Produces a revolver, and then Onions sees a coil of rope, and that really, really scares him. But as soon as I seen the rope, I thought, oh, that's going to be a, you know, it's going to take a bit of time. He's going to do whatever he wants. So uh, Onions jumps out of the car and realizes that uh, if he's going to save his life, he's got to escape. And he runs down the highway, zigzagging across the road, while Malat is pursuing him with his gun, shooting at Onions. I thought the next vehicle that comes out with it, the bow of the hill, I'm just going to stop it no matter what. But jump in front of it, yeah. In desperation, Paul throws himself in front of a people mover driven by Joanne Berry. He just about screamed, help me, he's got a gun. A van, people mover. that was very clear. When you did look back, as the car retreated, uh, did you see the look on his face? Well, like a smirk, like. It's a bit strange the way he was looking. That's like the last impression I had, like. Uh, and after that, of course, Mrs. Berry and Onions go to the local police station at uh, Barrel and report the incident. But remarkably, nothing happens. So a great... Barrow Creek. Okay, continue. Missed opportunity there. One of many missed opportunities, I suspect. If that opportunity hadn't been missed, what could that mean for the other lives lost? Uh, certainly some lives would have been saved if Malat had been apprehended at that time. Hey, the woman that was driving the paper mover, I mean van, who Paul Onions jumped out in front of. Let me, let me just recap. Honestly, I've listened to this a few times and it's a little bit weird with all the accents going on. So Paul Onions is a British backpacker. In 1991, he is offered a ride or is hitchhiking, one or the other. And this is, the, I have him a lot as the first Australian he meets. So he asks to go to a certain area. He starts to go to that area. And then he suddenly takes like a sharp turn that's not going towards that area, I believe. And um, the shit goes down. Uh, he says, I'm gonna get some cassette tapes when Paul's looking down there's cassette tapes in between them so he knows that he's up to no good he takes his chance and listen I can relate in a certain way to the way Paul Onions feels he's about to be attacked it hasn't happened uh no crime has actually really been committed uh it's the middle of the daytime so predators do uh, think that your guard is down because it is man uh when someone came after me it was 4 p.m on a sunday in a small town it, it made no sense so just i'm not trying to make people scared just be aware of your surroundings okay coming back from my tangent Two years later, and back in the UK... Oh, and wait, it's all these survivors that take a chance, haul ass and report it, that are the reason people like this get prosecuted. Thank you. Paul Onions... Not that the other people didn't try. Okay. ...catches the news headlines, sees reports of the terrible fate of the missing backpackers, and points Australian authorities to his original police report. Investigators fly him to Sydney to identify his attacker. I went through all the pictures, and that was the one that gave me an uh, initial reaction. It just made me uneasy when I looked at it. And then when I looked closer, I said to him, that's, that's the person who I think I met that day. It was Ivan Malat. 
Police swooped on his Eaglevale home where they found a treasure trove of evidence. Gun parts from the murder weapon, electrical tape, backpacks and sleeping bags of the victims. He was always in, in, um, in competition with the police and the authorities and I would say he thought he would never get caught. All right, so that was Paul Onion's testimony of what happened. And I also want to note the woman driving that van was named Joanne. There is a triad of Joannes. There's at least three Joannes throughout these um, different backpacker Australian murders that I'm going to go through that are all intertwined. So anyway, all right, let's continue. Australian authorities to his original police report. Investigators fly him to Sydney to identify his attacker. Y'all, they don't state it here, but I did read elsewhere. I've done my homework and research, y'all. Round of applause for me. So he actually, and this is what PTSD can do to you, and being just having traumas like this, Paul Onions actually thought that when they set up everything with the ticket for him to come over and testify, he thought this was him trying to lure him back in somehow. He thought the Malat had found him and was bringing him back to kill him. Can you even fucking imagine? I went through all the pictures and that was the one that gave me uh, initial reaction. Just made me uneasy when I looked at it. And then when I looked closer, I said to him, that's, that's the person who I think I met that day. It was Ivan Malat. Police swooped on his Eaglevale home where they found a treasure trove of evidence. Gun parts from the murder weapon, electrical tape, backpacks and sleeping bags of the victims. He was always in, in, um, in competition with the police and the authorities and I would say he thought he would never get caught. How critical was the evidence found at the Malat House? There was a link between the uh, deceased's people and Ivan Malat and the crimes. That's pretty important stuff, particularly if you've got names on, on property which had occurred that belonged to some of the backpacks. In further raids, police found more evidence in the homes of Malat's mother and his two brothers, Wally and Richard, who both deny any involvement. But at trial, Malat's own lawyer argued police had arrested the wrong family member. During this interview with Richard Colton in 1996, Richard Malat reiterated his innocence. So, Mr. Richard Malat, give me your explanation, please, of how come Carolyn Clark, this is the woman that got 10 bullets to the head, her sleeping bag, her sleeping bag cover, her sleeping mat, and her tent were found in your garden shed. That's only hearsay. No, it's not hearsay at all. It's the evidence. <laughs> evidence of who? And the sleeping bag of Joanne Walters, a 22-year-old. Joanne number two. Was found in a cupboard in that same shed. Can you explain, please? I can't, I can't explain it. What do you mean explain? How it got into the cupboard? How it was there? Yeah. 
I can't be sure. Now, if you can't be sure, then is it reasonable for the likes of me and others to speculate that maybe you had something to do with it getting there? Well, I don't know. You Just want to trust know. the police? Well, for a moment, I'll trust you if you tell me. Yeah, well, I can't say. Or would you accept that it looks a bit sus, then? No, I don't accept that it looks a bit sus. Okay, y'all. First of all, the most important thing here, sus came from the Aussies, y'all. No worries. That's a bit sus. This is the 90s. It took a while to get here. Anyway, just kidding. No, that's true. But anyway, so this is back to the original interview with the brother Richard, who was the tightest, tightest bro with Ivan. They were actually roommates at the time of his uh, arrest. He's sitting there with, um, you know, the redheaded Carolyn sister-in-law with uh, Wally, the one who beat the cameraman's ass. And, you know, Carolyn had been banging Ivan. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, just to fill that in for you and let us continue with the facts. Despite the judge at his trial believing the killer hadn't acted alone, Ivan Milat was the only one found guilty of the murders. The evidence was overwhelming, but his family, including sister-in-law Caroline, here with husband William Milat, continued to maintain his innocence. Well, what would you need to convince you that your brother did it? He would have to tell us. He would have to use those words, I did it. And then I would believe him. But um, he has actually said to me, I have not done this and I believe him. With all my soul, I believe him. I believe he did it. This is her present day. Why do you think so many of the Malats believe that Ivan Malat is innocent? I can't understand that, but they, they all stick together. They're a strong group. They're strong. And muscle And they'll stick together no matter what. And shirtless and tan. The man, But he would always have an answer. And that's what narcissistic, psychopath, manipulating, gaslighting fuckers do. That's what they do. protesting his innocence in his prodigious letters. Does he talk about death at all in his letters? About he does. He talks on a couple of occasions about death. Uh, uh, that cancer, he says, is a real bastard. Uh, God's way to keep the faithful a bit more faithful. 
and, and Malat says, um, those end-of-life thoughts, of course, nothing matters once you're dead. Mostly you are soon forgotten, though my relatives will remember a, a long while after I die. And then he finishes, if I die tomorrow, I lose the possibility to establish my innocence. So he's clearly taking um, his, his guilt to the grave. Before he was in the throes of esophageal cancer, Malat wrote to Roger for eight years, hoping to convince him he'd been set up. Malat would always say, oh, it was planted, I was framed. But he would always have an answer. He would always have a, um, a reason or an answer to support what he was saying, you know. And um, did you ever believe no, him? No, not at all, not at all. No, 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 not, not, not once. Uh, you, know, you have to accept that he was deluded. I think he was, he, he was so used to denying his involvement that he really genuinely think, thought he didn't do it, uh, ultimately. You know, he, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he, he got himself into that sort of frame of mind. If Ivan Milat's letters do not hold confessions or information about other murders, potential murders he committed, what is the value of them? I think it probably offers an insight into his mind more than anything the fact that he can continue to deny it. Um, I was always hopeful, I was always hopeful that he might drop his guard, that he might say something that could incriminate him, but he never did. How would you describe the mind of Ivan Milat? I think the mind of a monster. He was definitely a man with a very evil side to him, a man who got his kicks out of uh, these deviant acts, if you like. They weren't just straightforward murders. Uh, there was a, a great element of deviancy to them. From his letters, did you get a sense of whether he was crazy? No, I didn't. I didn't, not at all. I thought he was a very sane individual, apart from, you know, his, uh, you know, his depraved activities, if you like. You know. um, I think uh, he was very clear-minded. I think he knew what he was doing. He had a very clear understanding of um, the case, the case against him, and uh, uh, how he might try to fight it, how he might uh, uh, try to uh, demonstrate his innocence. There was a desperate hope that in the face of his own death, the serial killer would finally confess to all the lives he'd taken. But even on his deathbed, Mercy was beyond Ivan Milat, just as his former cop foe, John Laycock, predicted. He wouldn't plead guilty to breathing, and uh, he certainly wouldn't confess to a murder or to a homicide. And you knew that all along? Yeah. Look, I think if you drove your car out to the jail to interview Ivan about other crimes, you might as well keep the motor running. Seventy-four-year-old Ivan Milat has finally succumbed to cancer. By all accounts, his death would have been painful. Perhaps some comfort for the families he tore apart when he started his mindless murder spree 30 years ago. It certainly doesn't seem to trouble John, Ivan's former lover, Maureen, or his brother, Boris. And his manner of death, esophageal cancer. What do you think about that? Oh, well, they're the cards that were played to him, so... 
can't say too much about that. You certainly can't say anything sympathetic. Oh, not saying. sympathetic, no. What is your emotion around the death of Ivan Milat? I... No, I suppose. I don't think anything about it at all. To me, he died 20-odd years ago when he was arrested for this. Wasn't the person I knew. I'd rather remember the person I knew. Nice person. Um, yeah, though I have no feelings whatsoever. He's just a person that's died. Have you given any thought? Do you have any belief on what happens to Ivan Milat now that he's dead? None at all, except a big relief that the world is rid of one of the, or Australia is rid of one of the notorious serial killers and psychopaths, and that's where he is. It's a damn shame that he couldn't have been coerced in with the rest of the, um, his loving family to, um, to admit to it. Coming up, never forgetting the years of terror. It all comes back. All right, guys, so that pretty much sums it up for that portion. After Ivan was arrested, like they said, he did always maintain his innocence. He went on hunger strikes. He, in fact, tried to escape at one point and then was sent to another more like maximum security facility. He swallowed a bunch of razor blades at one point. And he also, and I must commend him for this because determination, you know, it'll get you places. And he used a plastic knife to cut off his pinky. A, pl a fucking plastic knife, you guys. So, I mean, at least there's that talent. We gotta, we gotta give him yet. Um, but yeah, he was one real sick fuck that all the things these people have in common, the control, the power they think they have. I mean, it's just them not giving up that information is just, oh, could bring some kind of closure and answers to people but oh like i like they were discussing i hope he's in a real hot place way hotter than australia right now so anyway um let's get to a few more of the essential sticky details thank you for hanging out with me this far i really truly love you guys for listening um thank you so much and i will be back for you my loves of a cold-hearted killer denying his crimes. That's what we heard in an exclusive report on A Current Affair last night. It was all part of a plan to try to crack Ivan Milat, playing him interviews with the heartbroken families of his victims in the hope that he would confess. A Current Affair, Simon Boda has the exclusive story. Is there anything that you wanted to talk to us about at all, Ivan? Okay. Ivan Robert Marco Milat. The tapes. I know how circumstantial cases work. Yeah. And that's how they are. And yeah. the one thing is it ties in with another. But no one can tie me in with the murder, you know, with yeah, the yeah. murders. Malat has always protested his innocence. 
And you guys, it wasn't just, I mean, they had over 200 pieces of forensic evidence alone. So, come on. He never wavered. His only response to the family interviews, quote, what do you want me to watch this for? They only say what you expect them to say. I don't feel sorry for them. Why should I feel sorry for them? If you've got one religious bone in your body, either, and, you're, and there's talk in the paper, and I don't know how true it is that you reckon you're going to heaven, mate, you're going you're to need someone to get a foot in the door, champ. As police left Malat to take his last breaths, they spoke of grief for his victims. He told them, quote, I don't care, that's it. As they walked out, they invited him to reach out at any time. Don't hold your breath, waiting for me to call, was all Malat said. Yeah, just remarkable. And Simon Boda joins us now. Jesus effing Christ. So, yeah, there's a special reservation for him somewhere. And, uh, yeah, that's all I got to say about that.